Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Now, my mom is here, so I got to be careful telling this story, and she can confirm or deny after the service. Hopefully, I'm remembering this right. When I was a kid, one of the games that we loved to play was Uno. Yep, say, yeah, I got it right. I remember it right. I used to love to play Uno. Many of you played it, and many of you may have refused to play it ever again. Some of you may have deep scars and wounds in your family due to playing Uno. We don't, but you might, I don't know. It can get mean, right? Uno can get really, really, really mean. And it can be the greatest test of family love and unity. There's no quarter given in Uno, right? There's no give or take. There's no teaming up to take someone down. There's no going easy on anyone. You have to get all of, get rid. You gotta get rid of all of your cards in the quickest amount of time and God help anyone who stands in your way. It's ruthless, it's ruthless. We should all go home and play Uno. It's gonna be great. And we all know the most dreaded card in the deck, the card that everybody hates to see. And that is the wild draw four card. Everybody hates that card. Now you might think, well, that's okay. You can get around it by putting another wild draw four on top of it, but no, you can't. The official rules state you cannot stack any card on top of the wild draw four. So if a player uses the wild draw four on you, you have no choice but to draw four, or do you? There's a rule that not a lot of people know, that if somebody uses a wild draw four card, there's a way you can reverse it, and it's not with a reverse card. If the person who plays the card on you if they change the color in play, they can't change it to another color if they still have the color previously played in their hand. So if a player puts down a yellow seven, and then the next person puts down a wild draw four and changes the color to red, but they still have yellow in their deck, they can be challenged on it by the next player. And if you challenge them on their hand and catch them out, then they have to draw four cards, not you. But you got to be careful because if you're wrong, then you have to draw six cards. So you kind of have to be careful when you do this. Now, this is sort of a silly example to draw out something that we see in the readings from this morning. In the Old Testament reading, we read the story of Adam and Eve's sin, their disobedience causing something to happen. But in Jesus Christ, the effects of that sin and the problem of sin and death themselves becoming reversed and done away with. What looks like a defeat or a coming defeat has been reversed and the unexpected occurs. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the Gospel of Matthew and then we're going to go back to Genesis and we'll look at it this way. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. So we often, when we read the Gospels, we forget about the humanity of Jesus sometimes. Remember, in the Gospels, Jesus... He gets sleepy. He gets tired. He's in the boat crossing the lake. And what happens while he's in the boat crossing the lake? The storm comes. 
while he's asleep in the boat. And what do the disciples do? They, do they leave him alone? No, they're like, Jesus, please wake up. We can't handle this on our own. Please wake up and save us. And he's like, you guys, come on. Just let me, just let me sleep. <laughs> That's how I picture it in my mind. But he's sleeping. They would have to wake him up to deal with it. We see him get short and upset with people, but with godly anger, right? When he goes to the temple and he sees all the buying and selling happening, what does he do? He makes Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, takes a whip, thongs, makes a whip, and he whips and he drives the people out of the temple. Jesus got a little angry. We see Jesus being moved to love. We see when confronted with people who need food, what does he do? Five loaves, two fishes, he blesses them, and he hands it, and he multiplies the food, and he feeds the people. We overlook at times the humanity, the true humanity of Jesus. As Christians, we confess that Jesus Christ is the God-man. To clarify what that means, the church called a council of Chalcedon in 451 and put it like this. So following the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, of one essence with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same of one essence with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days for us and for our salvation, the same born of Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. So what this council had to do was put to rest some theological issues, because a lot of times we have incorrect views about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and heresy throughout the history of the church can swing in direction of people who overemphasize his divinity at the sake of his humanity, or they overemphasize his humanity for the sake of his divinity. So what we need to do, brothers and sisters, is when we read the scriptures, when we read the gospels, we have to have those two things in mind, that Jesus Christ is fully divine, fully God, yet at the same time still fully human, like us in all respects. So when we see this text from the Gospel of Matthew, we can see this realized in the story of, of the temptation by Satan. So what does it say here in verse 2 in Matthew? It says he was what? Hungry. Hungry. It's interesting. Or I find this interesting as a side note. The, the Lamb of God who gives all those who are in him his flesh as true and lasting food himself has a moment of extreme hunger. Like I, You may have had this too, right? Times where you may have not eaten for a day and what happens? You're like, I'm starving. Well, you're not really starving. And right now it's really trendy to do what's called intermittent fasting. Have you ever heard of that? It's like a health, health thing where you, where you eat and then at a certain time you just don't eat anything for a good chunk of space. It's supposed to help with digestion and your overall physical health. It's really trendy right now, intermittent fasting. And then you get really hungry. But Jesus has denied himself food for 40 days and 40 nights. So when we think of Jesus fasting, or being out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it's not like he was just walking around the desert. Oh, this is a lovely rock. Walking around the desert. Oh, oh look at this little sagebrush bush over here, whatever they have in the area. He's not just waiting for something to happen. If he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and 40 nights, he is fasting, which means he is also what? Praying. 
He is fasting and he is praying for 40 days and 40 nights and he gets hungry. He gets hungry. We've talked about this before in the past, but the wilderness was the place where it was believed that the evil spirits dwelt. And this plays itself out all throughout the Old Testament. So in the Day of Atonement, and don't worry, this will all make sense, so stick with me, all right? There were two goats on the Day of Atonement. One goat was to be sacrificed, and then there was another goat that was to be set out of the camp. The priests would lay hands on that goat, symbolizing that the sins of the people had been laid on it, and then it was released into the wilderness, and in some cases led to a cliff and kind of pushed off to kill it so the goat couldn't come back into the camp bearing the sins of the people. In the Old Testament, it's not just enough to offer the required animals and sacrifice to God because sin in the biblical sense is something that taints not just the individual, but the community. Not just a single person, but everyone, all of God's people. The Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser notes about the goat's sacrifice, the purpose of the sin offering was purification, restoring an individual to ritual purity to allow that person to occupy sacred space, to be near God's presence. So to maintain that sacred space, the presence of God in the midst of them, the sins needed to be sent out away from the place that was sacred. Because the wilderness, being the abode of where the evil spirits are, that is the place where sin belongs. Not in the camp of the people of God, but in the wilderness with the wicked figures, right? The wilderness was not a cool place in their religious worldview. And we see, if you, we don't have time to go to, into a lot of this, but there were supreme wicked spirits that were thought to dwell in the wilderness. One called Azazel, which is basically Satan, the devil, right? So, with all of this in mind, where does Jesus go? Directly into the spiritual heart of darkness, right? After he's baptized and after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted, to the place where the goats bearing the people's sins are sent, the abode of evil spirits and of Satan. And it's here that he fasts and prays for 40 days. There's a theologian named Roberts who notes that what's happening here is the atonement ritual from Leviticus playing out that Jesus being baptized in the Jordan is bearing the people's sins out into the desert as the goat was driven into the desert. But Jesus being crucified is him fulfilling the sacrificial aspect. Some interesting parallels here. So Jesus has an encounter with Satan when he was hungry. Would you put a little pin on that about hungry because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. It happens at a moment when Jesus appears to be weak. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and each time Jesus rebuffs him, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, which makes me think, right, of what we heard, what, three weeks ago when I preached from, I said before you, life and death, blessing and cursing, choose life. Jesus, though, unlike Israel and their temptations, he actually does choose life, doing in himself what Israel could not do. And on Satan's home turf, right, the Super Bowl or whatever. Well, no one can play home turf in the Super Bowl, but during the regular season, you go to a city's hometown and you play, they have home turf advantage. Jesus goes to the devil's home turf and roundly and soundly defeats him, handily defeats him, and reclaims as sacred, purified space the area that was once the abode of evil. And Jesus, in his victory here 
over the temptations of Satan begins to undo the mistake we made at the beginning of time. Let's go back to Genesis. So in this story, we have the traditional account of the fall, the disobedience of the first human beings who subjected the world to death and the corrupting influence of sin. And it's probably worth stopping just for a second to note that there has been a lot of bad theology that really likes to blame Eve for everything. Have you ever heard that? It's Eve's fault. You may have come to churches where they heap all of the blame on Eve. Oh, there was no Eve, then we'd be still living in paradise. But when we read scripture, especially when we heard from the reading from St. Paul from Romans, who does he place the blame on? Not on Eve, not on the woman. He places the blame on who? On Adam, on the man, right? So we have to be careful how we read scripture and apply because there's been a lot of bad things said about women over the years because of, of that. But scripture places the blame on Adam. Now notice here who's doing the tempting here in Genesis. It is the serpent. Now this text with the serpent doing the tempting can be troublesome. And there's lots of speculation out there about the serpent, right? So some people have said that, you know, it's actually a real serpent. And then when God cursed it, its legs fell off and then it crawls on the belly. And that's why snakes crawl on their belly. But that's not what's going on here in the story. That's, that's something like Aesop's fables, right? Like how the leopard got his spots. This isn't about the story of how, why snakes slither on the ground. That's not what's going on here. Nobody back then also, right, believed that animals could carry on a conversation. Nobody believed that you could walk up to like a lion or a cow or a donkey or, or a, whatever, a sheep, and just start talking to it and it could listen to you. Like they're not in Narnia, right? There's no talking animals. Nobody believed that animals were talking to you back then. In the ancient world, animals were seen as they could be seen as the vehicles for manifesting a divine presence. And if we remember where Adam and Eve are, they're in the garden of God. The serpent in the text here is a type of angelic being or a, a type of divine presence. That who, that's what Eve is talking to, not to a snake. And we know this, it, it passages from Ezekiel. It calls uh, somebody here with the serpent imagery, you were anointed guardian cherub. And if we read what cherubs were, they were throne guardians that, were, that looked like serpents. That's where we get the serpent imagery from. A heavenly being before the throne of God. So the serpent here is not a picture of a slithering snake, but a divine being who successfully tempts Adam and Eve away from God's command by lying to them, thus committing rebellion against God himself as well. And this is who Jesus is going to toe-to-toe with in the wilderness. The very one who tempted Adam and Eve at the beginning is the very one who tries to tempt Jesus in the garden. But unlike Adam and Eve, they fail. And as a result, they are kicked out of the garden. But Jesus succeeds, and he reushers fallen humanity back into the presence of God. And notice here how they were tempted. Remember how I said earlier Jesus was hungry because he had fasted for 40 days? It says here in verse 6, The woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She ate and gave some to her husband, and he ate too. This is the same method Satan uses to tempt Jesus in their encounter. Commentator named Reno wrote, The temptation to turn stones to bread echoes the tasty fruit. The vision of the kingdoms of this world from the mountaintop echo the delightful appearance of the fruit. 
and the temptation to compel God to rescue his beloved son echoes the allure of wisdom. St. John calls this the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These three things form the foundation for all human temptation. The things we see, the things that we desire, and the drive to live apart from the God who made us by serving ourselves and the evil one. Jesus succeeds, and in his success causes St. Paul to write, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So through Adam's sin, his trespassing the command of God, death reigned through him, so we are all subject to it and enslaved to it. But in Jesus Christ, that has been reversed. As the God-man, he is recapitulating himself, all of humanity, in the same way Adam caused all of humanity to fall with him. And those of us who are in Christ will receive the abundance of grace and God's free gift of righteousness, which causes us to reign in life. Reigning in life is contrasted with being enslaved to sin and death. Temptation failed in the garden has become temptation reversed in Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, remember we said Jesus is both fully God and fully human, right? And Satan tempts him in the area where he thinks Jesus would be weak in his desire for food. Now notice he tempts Adam and Eve in their desire for food that was not allotted to them. And he attaches consequences to the disobedience that go against or contradict what God had said would happen. God really didn't say that. It's okay. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. And slowly but surely, Satan breaks them down. And we, brothers and sisters, are tempted in the same way. Satan tells us the things that God has forbidden us are the very things that will spark our joy or fulfill our deepest desires. Not in love with your spouse anymore? Divorce them and then go on a vacation to India to find yourself. The, the feelings you have for your husband or wife, are they not intense as they were when you were first dating? That's okay. You know, find a little something on the side for yourself. You ate two burritos at Chipotle and you're still hungry? It's okay. Just go buy another one and have three. Brothers and sisters, this is all bad advice. And what do we hear oftentimes too, right? Follow your heart. When you're trying to choose between something, or maybe you're not happy with your spouse, or your husband, or your wife, or your girlfriend, or your boyfriend. Maybe you're not happy with your job. Maybe there's something in your life that's not bringing your satisfaction. People will tell you, follow your heart. It will never lead you wrong. That is terrible advice. That is terrible advice. Scripture reminds us that our hearts are desperately wicked. That doesn't mean that there's nothing good in us, but that means that our hearts can and will often lead us astray. So we're not to follow our hearts because our hearts, quite frankly, are in constant need of being turned back to God. As a friend of mine, he says, don't follow your heart. He said, you need to lead it. You need to lead it. We are to lead our heart and to pattern our hearts according to the word of God. The tempter uses our hungers. He uses the passions that we have not tamed. The places where we are the weakest 
in order to launch an assault. And Lent can magnify this. Isn't it weird when we decide, I'm going to take specific time and I'm going to devote myself to prayer, to fasting, to almsgiving, to good works. It almost feels sometimes as if things start to go worse for you in your life. Am I the only one that's ever had that experience? I know some of you may have, maybe you haven't. Am I alone? No. Okay, good. I was just, I was just seeing if you all were awake. At the end of your pews, there's an injection of caffeine. Just go ahead and, and do that. I'm not the only one. When we, de- when we say, <laughs> I'm going to devote some time every morning to God. Now, sometimes. Like you may, you know. But oftentimes it feels like when we do that, when we decide to pursue God at the expense of something else, it's almost as if the desire to turn away from that gets ramped up. And we don't know what to do. It seems like the attacks that come against us are more difficult to resist. They're not easily cast aside. And brothers and sisters, Jesus sets the pattern for us. When we desire something we want to feed ourselves, we can respond. I will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we see something we may desire but should not have, we can respond with, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when we are tempted away from serving and obeying and loving God, we can respond with, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The word of God. We are to pattern our hearts and to pattern our lives according to the word of God. Because in the word of God, both hearing it read from here and hearing it proclaimed, we are armed And we are gifted with the resources we need when we are tempted, when we have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, when we are hungry, when we are thirsty, when we see something that allures us, but we really shouldn't look at it, or we shouldn't click on it, or we shouldn't check out that magazine, or we shouldn't eat that extra burrito, or we shouldn't flirt with that married coworker. We have the pattern. And it's not like God doesn't just say, do this of me, like do this, right? He doesn't say, Barry, do this. He doesn't say, Ray, do this. Dorothy, do this. In Jesus Christ, who's both perfectly divine and fully human, he does it first, and he does it for us so we can follow in the path that he set for us. So we can be empowered to do what he asks of us by the giving of his spirit, which we have all received. And so to our Lord and Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he fasted and prayed in the wilderness for 40 days, and as we fast and pray in our own wildernesses for 40 days, in this season of Lent, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting, and as all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to check us out online, zionstoneucc.com, or on our Facebook page, zionstoneucc. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you want to get a hold of me, shoot me an email at malandsman 
at gmail.com or through our social media page, like I just mentioned. If you could take a couple minutes, we would appreciate it if you went to a GoFundMe we've set up, gofundme.com slash savezionstone in order to donate towards some big repairs that we need to have done to the church. So if you could donate anything, we would greatly appreciate it. If you're in the area, come worship with us. Our services are at 1015 and our Sunday school is at 9 a.m. Thank you so much again for listening. May God bless you.